Our sermon text this morning as we continue in our study of the epistle to the Hebrews comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Here the apostle continues to describe the kinds of actions and thoughts and habits and loves that the church must embrace as she strives for the holiness of life to which she is called by her Savior. As we begin this morning, I just want to acknowledge the tensions inherent in preaching on a scriptural passage that calls us to honor marriage and to keep undefiled the marriage bed. I'm conscious of the reality, um, of course, that this passage may hit you differently based on your experience of these things, your experience of marriage and sexuality in your life. I just want to acknowledge that, that I understand um, that we come to this text with a story, um, a story that is as unique um, as we are. Um, Some of us in this room have been given the grace to experience the deep and profound blessing that comes with a decades-long marriage, where our marriages um, and our marriage beds have genuinely been kept undefiled. And I, I use that language intentionally. That is a blessing. That is something, if you, that is your story that you know by God's grace and kindness, um, because every one of us is a sexual sinner in some way. And that's simply true. Um, but for many of us, that may not be our story. Some of us have experienced marriages where um, the marriage bed has been defiled, um, whether through our sin or um, the sin of our spouse. And those of you in that situation, if that is your story, you know well the unique pain and suffering and betrayal that um, that kind of defilement of the marriage bed brings. Some of us have stories where divorce um, has ended a marriage that we were once a part of, um, whether through our failures or the failures of our spouse or some mixture of the two. Some of us um, in this morning have never known um, marriage. We've never been married even though perhaps we deeply desire to have that um, experience and calling, God has not yet given us that gift. And that too, I know, can be a story of deep pain and loss. And yet, no matter what our story is, what our perspective is, um, what our history is with marriage and sexuality, um, our scripture text this morning comes to us from the outside And it has a word for us to hear, for all of us to hear. This is not just a sermon for married people. Um, It is a sermon for Christians because this is the word of God and it is for the whole church. I encourage us to receive it as such. And I encourage you now to listen to God's holy and inerrant word once more. I'll read Hebrews 13, uh, 1 to 3 as well as verse 4 to give us the context Um, But we will be focusing this morning on verse 4. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And now verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Thus far, the reading of God's word. 
It is absolutely true. And it is given to you, friend, because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now by your Spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we might embrace and more and more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Beloved, God cares about your sexual holiness. He does. When it comes to your actions sexually, your sexual thoughts, your sexual desires, he simply says this. He says, be holy as I am holy. That's the word that he speaks. And and God is not only concerned with your sexual holiness as an individual. He is concerned about our sexual holiness as a community. We are in this together. This is a corporate call to holiness and purity in our sexual lives. And of course, this call to sexual holiness is not only present in our passage this morning or in the New Testament epistles more generally. It is there in the Old Testament. It is present again and again in the teaching of our Lord Jesus. In fact, the the call for God's people The necessity for God's people to embrace and live out sexual holiness is one of the most fundamental claims of the scriptures. It is there from beginning to end. And of course, we know that we live in a modern, contemporary Western culture that is not full of sexual holiness, but rather sexual confusion, disorder, despair, and abuse. It's the world we live in. We're in the middle of one of the greatest social experiments in human history. I don't know if you know that, but that's what your life is like. Essentially, we are all discovering in real time what will happen to men, women, and children who live in a society in which nearly every sexual rule is removed and where every, nearly every sexual impulse is not only permitted, but actually sanctioned and celebrated and said to be at the heart of who you actually are. We've never done it quite like this before in the history of the human race. And it's important to acknowledge that, that this is a unique and strange time in which we live when it comes to our sexuality. And I'll say, from my point of view at least, the early returns on this grand social experiment are not encouraging They're not. And with all the authority of the word of God that I can bear, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert this morning. If we continue down this path, it will be disastrous for us all. But but it's, it's worth remembering something. It's worth remembering, even with that statement that I've just made, that we are not in totally unprecedented times. Indeed, the larger Greco-Roman culture in which the first Christians lived and to which Jesus Christ came was also a culture of sexual disorder and confusion and abuse and despair. But over several centuries, if you read the history books, you'll find that that culture's sexual life was 
wholly transformed into something new. And do you know, friends, how that transformation happened in the first century and the centuries that followed? It happened because the new people of God who had been constituted around Jesus Christ and baptized in his name practiced radical lives of sexual holiness that were completely distinct from the culture around them. And over time, what happened is that the culture itself was made new. Through that leaven, the whole loaf turned into something different. It's a fascinating thing to read about. And if our culture is to be turned away from its own slow-motion suicide that we're in the middle of right now, it will happen only in one way. If the church of Jesus Christ once again embraces in a profound and radical way the sexual holiness that we are actually called to. That's God's plan to make our culture new, just to be clear. It's not the government, it's not medical professionals, it's not psychiatrists. None of those people can help us. Only the church can do this. Only the church has this calling. And the way that we do it is not primarily by pointing our fingers at people outside of our community, but ourselves living a new and fundamentally different kind of life. And along those lines, the apostle this morning has a prescription to offer the church for sexual holiness in the midst of a culture that was deeply disordered around sexuality. And he describes that prescription In these words, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It's interesting that within this context of a call to holiness and sexual holiness, the apostle addresses marriage in particular. He singles out marriage as an institution, and married people. That's not an accident. The sexual holiness of God's people begins with sexually holy marriages. And this is not arbitrary, friends. This is the way that God designed human society, human communities, to work. In the very beginning, God established marriage at the bedrock of human relationships, creating Eve from the rib of Adam and then giving her to him as his wife. The writer of Genesis comments, right? He says, therefore, a man will do this. He shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, not all are called to be married. The scriptures certainly make this quite clear, but as Hebrews tells us here, whether we are married or unmarried, the estate and the calling, um, the office of marriage, must be honored by all. For sexually holy marriages lay at the foundation of sexual holiness for the whole church, for the community, for the culture entirely around us. Somehow that, that ripple effect of holiness begins with those called to the estate of marriage, living holy sexual lives together. Now, men and women get married for many reasons. I understand that in our culture, um, it's not always been this way, but in our culture, love is the most typical reason, at least in terms of the way that people express um, their motivations. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong um, with the modern Western ideal of getting married because you're in love with someone. But friends, I need you to understand something. If you're a Christian, if you belong to Christ, if you're part of the holy people of God, marriage, if you enter into it, is not merely about your own personal fulfillment or your happiness or your satisfaction or your in-loveness. It's not just about that. No, for the Christian, marriage is a vocation. It's the embrace of a particularly holy form of life for the sake of other people, actually people outside of your marriage. That's what you're doing when you get married. To put it bluntly, because marriage is a calling to be honored by all, your marriage is not just about you. The holiness of your marriage is a gift you give to your children, but also to your neighbor. It's for them as well that you are called to marriage. In the early 1940s, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by the Nazi government and from his prison cell he wrote a letter to two close friends of his that were getting married um, at that time um, that helpfully describes, I think, the honorable calling of marriage. I've printed an excerpt of that letter on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to read along. I'm going to read this to you. This is what Bonhoeffer wrote to this young man and young woman um, who were about to get married. He said to them, Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. In your love, Bonhoeffer says, you see only your two selves in the world, but in marriage you are a link in a chain of generations, which God causes to come and to pass away into his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. Hear that, friends. If you are married, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love, Bonhoeffer says, is your own private possession. He says, I'll give you your love. But your marriage is more than that. Your marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for one another that joins you together in the sight of God and man. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, that is the holiness, the rights and the promise of marriage above the sanctity, the rights and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Beloved, I'm convinced that Bonhoeffer is exactly right here. If we're going to embrace sexual holiness as a church, as we are called to do, we need to embrace a far more comprehensive understanding of the honorable call of marriage than we typically have, I think. Marriage is an office. It is a calling. And it is to be honored and elevated and held up in an appropriate way. 
To be a husband or a wife is no small thing. It is a position of great responsibility in the church and in the world. Both for the community in which you live presently, right? The people in this room right now. But also for generations to come. Beloved, you need to hear this if you're married. Not only your children, but also your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will be deeply impacted by your life. And if you're married, they will be deeply impacted by the way in which holiness is or is not characteristic of your marriage. By the way in which you do or do not practice fidelity to the vows that you have made. In some ways, that is one of the most fundamental ways that you will impact your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. You want to talk about doing something important, something meaningful with your life? If you're married, you found it. You have found the most significant calling that you could have. A church that is full of people who have been faithfully married for 40 or 50 or 60 years, whose marriages have been characterized by holiness and faithfulness and love. I'm not telling me anything profound, just simple fidelity, friends. Right? Just gentleness. Those kinds of marriages will change the world. Like, do you get that? Particularly in the context of the culture in which we live, in which those kinds of marriages will become around us less and less common. If the church can do this, it will change the world. And as a church, we must think about this. We have to think about the kind of marriages that we honor, the kind of love that we honor. In our culture, of course, it is young love, young passion that is honored and held up and elevated in value and importance, right? Listen to popular music, watch the kind of films that come out, read the books that are published. And there's nothing wrong with young love, to be clear. But the power and influence and importance of young love pales in comparison to the power and influence and importance of mature love. A young marriage is a little fire. A mature marriage, a marriage tested by the decades, is a bonfire. And we should acknowledge that. We should honor that. Right? Those marriages that last, those husbands and wives who grow old together, who grow more deeply in love and holiness and wisdom as the years and the decades go by, those should be our heroes. Right? Those should be the people that we honor and elevate Let marriage be held in honor among all, the apostle says. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And along those lines, I just want to say a brief pastoral word to those women in our church who are married but have chosen not to work outside the home, um, instead spending their lives serving their husbands and if God has granted you that blessing, your children. I just want to speak to you for a moment if that's who you are. Sisters, hear this from me this morning. Right? I know that this calling that you've embraced and the situation in which you find yourself is not one that is very highly valued in our contemporary culture. I know that there are many voices in our society that are saying implicitly or 
even explicitly, that if you do this, if you continue um, in this path, you are running the risk of wasting your gifts, right? Wasting your education, even perhaps devaluing your personhood because you're not pursuing a career out there in the marketplace. But beloved, I just want you to know that that's not true at all. You probably already know that. You probably already are smart enough to, to see that clearly. But I just want you to hear that from me. That's false. That is not true. That's a lie. You are not wasting anything at all. Your calling as a wife, as a mother, it's profoundly important. And by giving your life, your time, your energy, what you have in service to your husband and your children, you are doing something profoundly beautiful. You're producing fruit, not only in the present, but you're giving your life for something that will bear fruit for generations to come. You need to know that that is a profoundly good thing. And as your pastor, I just want to publicly honor you for your high and essential calling. It matters. It matters so much. So hear that from me. But friends, the apostle in this passage does not only teach us to honor marriage, he also calls those of us who are married to holiness right? He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And what does this mean? What does the apostle mean here? What does it mean for the marriage bed to be undefiled? Clearly, the apostle is talking about sexual holiness here. And he's using the marriage bed, the place where marital sexual intimacy is experienced as a kind of picture of that sexual holiness. By instructing us to keep the marriage bed undefiled, he is essentially saying this. He's saying, protect the marriage bed. The marriage bed is sacred space. It's holy space. And because the marriage bed is a holy place, don't let anything come into that sacred space that should not be there. And don't let the intimacy found in that marital love experience in that place go outside of the boundaries of the marriage bed. The first part of this command is negatively oriented, so to speak, right? It's to, we're to keep impure things out of our marriages. That's what the apostle is saying here. Of course, as a bare minimum, this is a, is a prohibition against adultery, right? That should be clear, right? Married persons vow sexual fidelity and faithfulness to their spouses, and this means that all forms of sexual or physical intimacy with others outside of the marriage must be abandoned, Right? We vow to love one another, forsaking all others until death do us part. But physical adultery with another person is not the only thing prohibited by this command. And I just, I'm just going to put it out there. In our cultural moment today, we cannot talk about this passage without talking about the danger of pornography and what it poses to the marriage bed. Friends, you don't need me to tell you or convince you or read you a list of statistics that we live in a culture that is saturated with pornographic material, right? You know this. I don't have to argue for it. After abortion, the production and consumption of pornography is one of the great moral crises of our age. That is what it is. It's a great moral crisis of our age, and it is impossible to overstate the disastrous ramifications in which 
the way in which pornography has become normalized and is now nearly ubiquitous in our culture, right? It's hardly worth even commenting on anymore. It's just everywhere. And to be clear, we cannot blame this great moral crisis just on the internet, right? It's the internet's fault. Or smartphones. No, beloved, the problem, as has always been the problem, is the human heart and its capacity for selfishness, for power, for cruelty. The internet and smartphones have only made it much easier and convenient for us to abuse and destroy one another. It's worth pointing out, friends, that every time a pornographic image or video is viewed, it is an act of abuse and cruelty to an actual human person who is on the other end of that image or video. That's someone's daughter. That's someone's son that you're looking at. That is a divinely created man or woman made in God's own image with inherent dignity and value and worth and whose nakedness and vulnerability is now being invaded by you and used by you for your own selfish ends. You, a person whose name they'll never know. We need to wrestle with that. The problem of pornography is not only that it is adulterous, it is that it is abusive, that it destroys people on both ends of the equation. And sadly, friends, to our shame, marriage beds in, our church, in, in the church are sometimes defiled by the use of pornography. This is a thing that exists, typically by one spouse against the wishes of the other, or perhaps sometimes even without their knowledge. The marriage bed becomes defiled in that way. Again and again in my ministry, I've seen this. I've seen the terrible impact that unchecked, unrepented of use of pornography can have on marriages, even in the church. Beloved, this should not be so. In fact, according to the scriptures, this must not be so. It must not be this way. And I just want to say, as your pastor, if this is your experience, if you know something of what I'm talking about, if your marriage bed is being impacted by pornography and its use, I just want to say to you, please, please, for the love of God and for the love of your marriage, Ask for help. Don't try to figure this out on your own. Don't try to manage it. Because you cannot do it. I don't care if you are the spouse who is guilty of using pornography or if you are the spouse who is being harmed by your husband or wife's use of it. Either way, just let's talk. Right? Let's talk about this. Come to me. Ask for help. Let's discuss these things. You are not going to shock me, I promise you. It is not going to happen. Let's handle this together head on. Let's figure out what it means to move forward in repentance and healing and holiness. Because God wants that for you. And make no mistake, God is able to forgive this kind of sin. Absolutely. He is able to heal and repair marriages that have been marked and impacted and damaged by pornography. That is absolutely the case, and I've seen that as well. Thanks be to God, who makes all things new in Jesus Christ. But only very, very, very rarely, friends, 
can you do this by yourself? Don't believe that you can figure it out on your own. Ask for help. Ask for the deliverance of God from outside of yourself. But again, remember, the reason to ask for help is not only because of the the pain and damage that pornography can introduce into a marriage. The reason to ask for help is because your marriage is not just about you. And so much depends on the holiness of your marriage. On the purity of your marriage bed. So much depends on it. Friends, I know I've been pretty straightforward here um, about the dangers of sexual defilement in our marriages. But as we close this morning, I just want to speak for a moment about the blessing that our marriages can be when the marriage bed is kept holy or when repentance happens and holiness is restored. You see, when a marriage bed is like that, when it is a place of safety and there's not defilement, when impure things are kept out, it creates the space for something remarkable. A kind of holy intimacy, a kind of holy playfulness, holy love that can exist in no other form in this world in quite that way. And in May of next year, in 2023, Amy and I will, by God's grace, um, celebrate the 20-year anniversary of our wedding. 20 years. We were both 22 when we got married almost 20 years ago. And to be clear, we had no idea, um, no idea of what we were getting into. Um, not only do we not really know each other, um, we thought we did, but we did not. Um, we didn't even know ourselves, right? I, I, yeah, I did not know who I was at 22. Um, I was a mystery, and Amy was a mystery, and yet we stood up and made those vows um, like the young people that we were. And 19 and a half years later, I get the feeling that we're only now just beginning to figure it out, right? And we're still just beginning to figure it out. Who we are, who each other are, what it means to be married with one another. I get the sense that what we know now is only a beginning, only a taste of what we might have in another 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Or if God is merciful, even more years than that. And I hope that he is. You see, friends, there's a kind of hiddenness to a marriage that lasts. There's a kind of secrecy about it for people who are on the outside of it. In a marriage where there is repentance and healing and purity and holiness. What I mean is that there are depths to that kind of marriages. Depths that I'm only now beginning to understand Intimacies that are unknowable to anyone who is not a part of it. Intimacies that weren't possible for that husband and wife to experience in earlier years of their life together. I mean, in marriages like the ones that I'm describing, marriages that last over the years, marriages whose bed has been kept holy over the decades, friends, there are whole novels that could be written about a single glance between that husband and wife. Whole novels about a shared moment of laughter or a brief touch of the hands. As human beings, we are capable of so much in this life if we live the way that God intends for us to. 
The Russian theologian Alexander, Alexander Schmiemann, he reflected on the power and beauty of a holy marriage over time, and he wrote um, this paragraph, words that have stuck with me since I first read them years ago. I'm understanding them more um, year by year. Schmiemann writes this, he says, In movies and magazines, the icon of marriage is always a youthful couple. But once in the light and warmth of an autumn afternoon, this writer saw on the bench of a public square in a poor Parisian suburb an old and poor couple. They were sitting hand in hand in silence, enjoying the pale light, the last warmth of the season. In silence, all the words had been said, all passion exhausted, all storms at peace. The whole life was behind, yet all of it was now also present. In this silence, in this light, in this warmth, in this silent unity of hands, present and ready for eternity, ripe for joy. Schmiemann says, this to me remains the vision of marriage of its heavenly beauty. Beloved, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That is the power and beauty of Christian marriage, the possibility that exists inherent in Christian marriage. And so let us honor it together. Let us honor it. For so much depends upon the honor and the holiness of our marriages. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.